the Arena Football Hall of Fame has returned, and we want you to become a part of the family. Introducing the Arena Football Hall of Fame Patreon. Whether an all-star or a Hall of Famer, our reasonably priced tiers each have their own exclusive perks. Early access to the AFL Rewind podcast, honorary selection committee member, and much more. Help us build a Hall of Fame we'll all be proud of. Head to patreon.com slash Fame to join. Welcome to AFL Rewind, a look back at all things arena football, sponsored by Phenom Elite. I'm your host, Tim Capper. Throughout this historical series of podcasts, we've been able to revisit how many of the teams that we loved got their beginnings in league history. You know, whether it had been the uh, the Albany Firebirds or whether it was the um, really the second coming, I guess, but it was, it was the, from the Pittsburgh Gladiators to the Tampa Bay Storm, so the Tampa Bay Storm got their start. Well, this episode, we are going to be speaking with a gentleman who had a very integral part in starting up a team that became one of the two teams in what many call in Arena Football League history the best rivalry that the league ever had. This episode, we're going to be speaking with Eric Lyons. Uh, he was one of the uh, managing partners for the Orlando Predators. And our conversation with him will encompass everything from uh, the name Predators itself uh, when it came to their you know, their black and red uh, color scheme, uh, to many of the of the interesting aspects of the team itself, and what it was like to be an owner of a team in the Arena Football League. Plus, we'll also be uh, uh, reminiscing about his his time with other teams in the AFL. So, without further ado, let's speak with Eric Lyons. Well, on this episode. It's a little bit different than what we've had before in the past, but uh, just by looking at this gentleman's resume, I think we're going to have some great stories uh, from him uh, coming up. Uh, with us this episode is Eric Lyons. He is a gentleman who, if you if you were a Predators fan, you knew who this guy was, but he he was just a lot more than being a part of the Atlanta Predators organization, but uh, we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, hey, Eric, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Tim. Um, well, you know, as you know, I think people who remember you specifically, if they only seen your name or did a search for your name within arena football, they'll notice that you were the 1992 executive of the year. We'll be getting to that. Um, but let, let's start off at the very beginning back in 91. I mean, you weren't necessarily just the predators director of operations that year. You had quite a few hats, but what I wanted to ask you about specifically, because I know you're a minority investor. Were you, are you able to tell us the story of how the Predators actually came to be? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. The uh, And it kind of pretty much originated with uh, a guy named Mike McBath. Uh, Mike uh, played at Penn State and uh, with the Buffalo Bills, and he originally got to Orlando in the 70s with the World Football League. Mm-hmm. He, he played for... Jack Pardee and the Florida Blazers, and he settled in Orlando and became a stockbroker. And uh, when Arena Football started up, uh, he started following it, just being a football guy. And uh, his 
Uh, he was a stockbroker at Payne Weber, and his boss at Payne Weber was a fellow named Tracy Allen. Tracy was in charge of the entire state of Florida for Payne Weber uh, until Tracy retired about 89. And uh, uh, so when when Mike really got got the itch, you know, he kind of followed it for the first couple of years. And of course, the league ex- imploded or exploded, however you want to characterize it. And then, uh, uh, you know, they reached out to the league, or, or Mike did, in, uh, I guess, you know, midway through 1990 or so, mm-hmm. and uh, started talking with Foster. And he got uh, Tracy involved, but, you know, neither of those guys were, you know, you know, they, I mean, they had done well in their careers, but they weren't, you know, super big money guys. So they needed to put a little group of investors together. And uh, one of, you know, Tracy, Tracy was uh, one of the top amateur golfers in Florida for many years. And so golf was his passion. And uh, one of his big golfing buddies was Davey Johnson, the uh, former Mets manager. And I mean, Davey, Davey had gotten fired from the Mets in, uh, I don't know, early in the 1990 season. And uh, uh, Davey was, was kind of kind of an interesting thing. At, at that time, prices of Major League Baseball teams were still low enough that you could in, become an investor for not a, not a whole lot of money. So Davey had a uh, he thought that maybe it would help him get a new job in Major League Baseball if he could invest some money in a team. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, he also had a, a real estate project that he was doing in uh, north central Florida that he, he took public at the time. And he reserved a portion of the public offering for an investment in a professional sports franchise. Right. So it just so happened that when uh, Tracy approached him with the idea of arena football, he had this money fresh in his pocket from the public offering and set aside. And uh, so Davey said, yeah, let's do it. And so Davey was the original uh, majority investor. Okay. And then there was uh, a group of several other people. Basically, there were different different shares to the team that, uh, you know, were broken up. Like there was one, uh, one guy, uh, who was a former U S congressman who was in one of the major law firms in town and he was a friend of Tracy's. So he said, yeah, I'll put in X dollars. And then he split that amount up amongst like nine other attorneys in his law firm. So, you know, there were actually probably, 25 total people involved that had, you know, anywhere from say $5,000 to a couple hundred thousand dollars invested. Right. right. And, and how, how are you, so, how are you, uh, you involved too? Because I know you were as being a minority investor, what, what, what was told to you in order to bring you into the fold also? Well, I was actually, uh, my, my wife at the time had been longtime friends with Tracy's wife. And so we were, we were social friends with them. And actually I, 
I was playing golf with Tracy on the day when Davey drove up in his golf cart and said, (laughs) I got the money together, let's do it. And so that piqued my interest. So after Davey drove off, I asked Tracy, you know, do what? And he told me and I said, I want in. Okay. You know, know, um, my background was in real estate development and construction, uh, both from the operations side and marketing side at that point. But I had a, uh, from side investments and things, I had been involved in some concert promotion and some things like that. So kind of the you know, event promotion business was already in my blood. So this just kind of fit in. Um, not being a part of a, of an ownership of a football team before or any sports team before, did you have any questions? Were you able to do your due diligence or did you go based off of what Davey was able to tell you about the league itself and, you know, commissioner Foster, no, it, et cetera? No, it, it was, you know, it's, was, throw away money. Okay. You know, it's fun money. I mean, you, when you get involved in something like that, uh, you know, I, I always, when later on, when I was involved in, in selling franchises, you know, the analogy I would always make to people was that it's, it's like rental property. Okay. You, You know, whatever money, if you can make money year over year while you own and operate it, that's great, but it's never going to be enough to change your personal lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You know, what you hope is that the value of the asset will, appre- will you know, you'll hope the expenses, the, you know, the income will cover the expenses as the value of the asset grows over time. And then maybe someday when you sell it, you can make a little money. Right, right. You know, but, but the sports and entertainment business, I mean, it's... Uh, it's as much fun as it is a business. Okay. Okay. Um, when it came to the, you being a minority owner, did you have any say on wh- what the identity was going to be? You know, it finally was the predators, obviously, and everybody knew them for their black and red uniforms throughout their history. Did you have any insight in, into uh, in, in, any input into the identity itself? Or uh, was it just something that the, you know, the majority owners were going to decide on? Well, no, actually, I mean, everybody kind of had some input. Basically, uh, uh, David Johnson's oldest daughter was working for an advertising agency in Orlando. Mm-hmm. So they hired uh, that advertising agency and, and it was a company called Jackson Design. And the, and the principal, Scott Jackson, was a very talented guy. And, uh, you know, he came up with a list of. I don't know, 50, 60 potential names and, uh, you know, predators ended up getting picked, but Scott did the logo. Scott did the colors, you know, uh, as far as the, you know, the, the, all the original marketing stuff, giving credit where credit is due. That all goes on Scott Jackson's shoulders. And it's iconic and it's iconic to this day. I, I remember, it's funny. I remember actually one year for Halloween, Doing the Predator scratch logo on my pumpkin, <laughs> so it 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 made you know it it made an impression on me. Yeah. That's the yeah. thing. Yeah. And I think that's what you that's what you were looking for. Yeah, and then then from the uh, kind of the entertainment and presentation side, 
you know, again, just pure serendipity. Uh, at the time, there was a guy living in Orlando uh, by the name of Mark Grega. Mm -hmm. And Mark is, uh, to this day, he's one of the top uh, laser and pyro guys doing rock concerts around the world. Okay. And he had... He was, t he was living in Orlando at the time. I think his wife was from Orlando. And he was taking a break after finishing the 1989 Pink Floyd World Tour. And, and so, you know, this is the cream of the crop of, you know, arena event presentation. And he wandered in the office one day and, you know, came, you know, just came up with all these suggestions for, you know, lasers and pyro and he's the one who came up with the welcome to the jungle ah. as as the theme song and everything so again giving credit where credit is due you know it's mark grega and you know he's now in chicago and has a company called strictly fx and he's still out there doing david gilmore roger waters ariana grande he's doing the top tours around the world wow so, so it's funny. So not only do, you know, the names that we uh, coaches and players start off earlier, but obviously now we have more tie ins, you know, it's sort of like, what are they, was it, uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah and it, I mean, it, I mean, it's, and it's really interesting all the, uh, like you got into a little bit with Ricky Foggy, all the cross pollination with, with other leagues like the CFL. And mm -hmm. I mean, just the, the, the roots, of the arena football league are just so deep in whether it's the world league, the USFL, uh, you know, very, the CFL, other leagues that have come and gone. I mean, you know, uh, uh, the continental league, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which, which brought Perry Moss to Orlando originally in the late sixties, as well as, you know, some names you may know from the CFL, like Don Jonas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Brett Muncy's father, Tom Muncy, was uh, a wide receiver on the Orlando Panthers, which won the Continental League when Perry was head coach. And, you know, he and a bunch of the other guys from that team settled in Orlando and became high school coaches and raised their families and, you know, stayed in touch. Uh, Tommy Bland, who was a uh, great wide receiver on the Continental Panther, the, uh, the Continental League, uh, Orlando Panthers. He was the wide receivers coach of the Predators the first year in 91. So just all this interconnected stuff is nope. fascinating. For sure. Uh, and, and also you're talking about, you know, play, you know, not only people or play, uh, people or players that come from other locations, you'd be like Barry Wagner also, if, you know, if Barry had not, if that, if he uh, was, was the spring professional football league had, had hadn't failed. He may have not come to the Predators. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, similar. I mean, I, I think you know, you may have heard the sto story, you know, on a broadcast or something about how. Uh, I mean, we were just, uh, you know, during the off that first off season between '91 and '92, mm -hmm. most days it was just Perry and I in the office, along with uh, and our ticket manager, Edie, and uh, Bob Flynn, who's now with the National Predators, uh, who was an intern with us at the time. And uh, uh, when that 
one of the training camps for the PSFL was up in DeLand, which is 40 minutes north of Orlando. And when that failed and all these guys got locked out and stranded and everything, a whole flood of people showed up in our offices. And, and uh, like, uh, who was the guy? There was a lineman that had pe- played with Perry in uh, Chicago or Detroit, Quentin Knight. Okay. And uh, he was with one of the teams, and uh, he came into the office, and he, and Perry ended up signing him for 92. But uh, uh, a guy that was with him that Quentin was trying to get Perry to sign that Perry didn't, was a fellow by the name of Darren Arbet. There we go. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then, of course, we had you know, a similar story with uh, Carl Akins, who had played for Perry in mm-hmm. Chicago, I think, and he was in the PSFL, and he came in, and he didn't have Barry Wagner with him, but he had Barry Wagner's highlight tape. Okay. And I can remember sitting around with Perry, and I think Les was there, and, I mean, it was just... You know, it, it was just draw, jaw dropping. I was like, we got to get this guy. Yep, sure. Um, are you able to, to blow a couple of minds here and tell us what possibly what possible other names the Predators might have been? <laughs> because we hear, you know, heard the stories about what what the Albany Fire reduced could have been and what possibly, you know, what the what was reported. I think that Tampa Bay originally may have been called the Predators or something like that. But I mean, I, I you know, uh, but uh, it wasn't able to be confirmed. But any names that you remember that, that the Predators might have been? Um, not off the top of that, my head. Again, you know, there's a list of probably 50, 60 possibilities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're going back almost, uh, I hate to say how many years. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but uh, you know I, a lot of the things, you know, well, obviously – Predators came out of the movie industry. I'm sure like Terminators was on the list. I mean, just a a whole bunch of stuff. And of course, a lot of things got eliminated because, uh, you know, possible trademark issues. And yeah, but uh, Um, uh, I mean, I don't I don't remember anything else being a close contender. I mean, it was it was pretty much always Predators, you know, and, and and again, credit Scott with the idea of, you know, it was like, okay. You know the the logo with the talons scratching through the back mm-hmm. of of the name it was always meant to be kind of mysterious. You know what yeah. what would a predator be? You know a predator probably lives in a jungle, and a predator is probably you know some kind of cat or some kind of bird. But you know so it was always a mystery what the predator was until. Uh, you know, we had a mascot idea presented to us in similar fashion to how the welcome to the jungle and the pyro and all that stuff was mm-hmm. just someone popped in the office with a suggestion and, you know, a bunch of us sitting around just looked at each other and said, yeah, that's cool. Let's do it. Yep. And to this day, if anybody knows Predator's history, it's uh, it's claw, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it, it was it was not originally. OK, Uh uh, I'll, I'll say, uh, I want to use his last name, but Alan, the guy yes. who was, uh, uh, Duckworth, Duckworth. Yeah, Alan Duckworth, yep. who was, who was clawed during most of the time. He was actually the second one, the original, okay. the original design and everything. Uh, one of the other people involved in, uh, uh, in the predators in the 91 season was, uh, 
a guy named Billy McGee, who uh, Billy might also be an interesting conversation for you at some point because sure. you know, he's been several places, Tampa, Nashville, and so forth. But uh, Billy was a uh, had also been in the event promotion business, and it was like his uh, he had uh, these two two ladies that worked for him. He he managed some tennis facilities. He was a former touring tennis pro uh and so he managed some tennis facilities and a couple he had the, these two twin sisters who worked for him and the brother of one of the sisters is the one who came up with the the whole predator the original predator costume and and he was he was involved in some kind of uh para rescue group that did Repelling and you know high altitude uh, rescue okay. type stuff. So okay. he, he came up with the you know he was the first one that came up with the concept. Wouldn't it be cool to repel out of the rafters during the opening? So I said, okay, go for it. <laughs> oh, I can, I can only imagine. I said that's that's something I, I may have to go searching through uh, through newspapers dot com to see if I can find what they what what uh, you know when that when he was first introduced. So. Um, was it all you mentioned him before and you're talking very highly of him? Was it always going to be Perry Moss as a head coach? Uh, yeah, I, I think you know, there was uh, you know, he w- he was well known in the area. Obviously, he'd been the coach of the uh, the, the Panthers in the Continental League, and then uh, you know, there was part of our ownership group had also been involved in the uh, Renegades. In the World League or the USFL, rather, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Perry had basically rescued that team, and uh, so he was very well thought of. And uh, and uh, you know when, when and you know he had uh, had a long time Florida connection going back to when he'd been uh, uh, head coach and athletic director at Florida State back in the late fifties or early sixties. And he had some Orlando residential connections, and uh, Les, his, his son, yeah. had just finished up at UCF. So I mean, they were right there in Central Florida anyway. And when uh, when Tim Markham, after his one year hiatus with Steve Spurrier, decided to return to the Detroit Drive, that made Perry available. And you know, the the two top guys in that you wanted coaching your team in the arena league at the time were Tim Markham and Perry Moss. Exactly. Considering you know, I mean, people you remember too, that Moss started at the very beginning back in 87. He was the head coach for the Chicago bruisers. So, yep. um, as your, as your resume shows, I mean, I, I mentioned to everybody that you did have a lot of hats, even that first year itself. I mean, your marketing manager after the first game itself, director of operations after the season itself, sorry, director of media relations, and also director of operations for you. What was the toughest part about getting this team up and running? What, what were the, what were the, uh, obviously brand new team. You yourself had probably had never been in a, a place where you were, had a startup of a new sports team, but what were the, the biggest challenges did, that you faced as a minority investor for the predators that year? Well, in, 1991, the, I mean, the whole thing was kind of a kind of a blur. There was uh, uh, a, they had hired uh, a fellow named Denny Petro, 
who had uh, uh, he had worked for the uh, Gladiators in mm-hmm. Pittsburgh the year before, and actually that that team had kind of been a joint venture between Bob Grease and the Pittsburgh Civic Arena. Okay. So actually, Denny had actually been an employee of the Pittsburgh Civic Arena. And when Bob moved the team to Tampa, he, for whatever reason, you know, chose not to hire Denny. And uh, so uh, Mike and Tracy decided to hire Denny as the director of operations the first year because he had some knowledge of the game. He at least had a year of knowing what it looked like. And uh, actually, uh, Perry was the only one who would of anybody having to do with any management of the team, Perry and Denny were the only two people who'd ever seen an arena football game. True. Okay. I mean, we, I remember there was a, uh, before the 91 season, there was an exhibition game in Jacksonville and, uh, Perry and Davey and Tracy and I drove up together to see that game. And, you know, for Davey, Tracy and I, it was the first time we'd ever actually seen, an arena football game. So, and that was a couple of weeks before we were starting up on our own. So, I mean, the whole thing was kind of a blur and it's just the, uh, we had, uh, like before the season ever started, the guy that they had originally hired to do the media relations work, uh, he didn't work out for whatever reason. And so that was a void that I stepped into because, I had a little background in marketing and public relations. Okay. And then uh, uh, maybe two or three weeks into the season, the guy that they had hired to do uh, the ticket management, uh, he didn't work out for whatever reason. So there was another void there. So, and I had some, some previous background and knowledge there. So I kind of stepped in there and, got some people trained up to do the ticket stuff. So, um, there weren't, you know, it was just kind of a series of, of challenges that we we're all kind of figuring out on the fly that first year. But, you know, the, the main challenges came that next off season, the 91 to 92 off season when, you know, I got and put, put in charge of things mm-hmm. and I had to figure out how to, pay the bills and, and get us into a second season because it was, it was definitely in doubt whether there would be a second season. Well, how, how far into the, in the 1991 off season, at what point did you and the ownership group decide there, the predators will be back for 1992? Um, well, I, I think everybody wanted it, but, uh, basically, all the money that had been invested was gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, you know, the, the information that the league put out about what it cost to run a team was basically completely inaccurate. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not surprised. And, uh, that I <laughs> yeah. And, and so all the, all the money was gone. And, and so we had to, you know, basically figure out, how we were going to get to the second season. And, and, uh, I remember when we were, uh, uh, when we were moving our field out of the Orlando arena at the end of the first season and loading it onto trucks to go into 
off-site storage, the uh, uh, arena manager uh, very loudly proclaimed to everybody with an earshot, well, they'll never be back. Wow. And uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> We uh, so we definitely had a lot of challenges, but uh, I mean, whether it was uh, we had to renegotiate our arena deal to get something that that would work uh, for both parties. Uh, we had even back at that time, we had uh, workers comp was beginning to become a challenge mm-hmm. and we had we had to uh, uh, tackle that bull by the horns and. Uh, you know, we basically, you know, came up with a, you know, we, you know, the ownership decided they were going to go forward, and we came up with a game plan, and basically our game plan centered on selling season tickets, and we just went to work and sold season tickets. It was, was is selling season tickets was it fun for you? Because obviously you'd come off of a. I, I'm any season that you get to the next season, you consider it a success. I mean, yes, you were three and seven that first season. That that's fine. You know, it's it, very rare for an expansion club to do as well as the you know Vegas you know the Vegas Knights did their first year, as an example. Yeah. But um, what was it like trying to sell season tickets to 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 the masses? Because you know, obviously, arena football is something new. You have a plus that you have the team in Tampa Bay, so you're kind of fighting over the state in a way even though you're on opposite sides of the state but what was it an easy sell to sell these season tickets to fans uh no and we also had the challenge that in uh uh that there was another football team in town called yes. the orlando thunder in the world league that's right so you know you're you're uh they got bigger budgets and more money to spend and their traditional we were atypical, and uh, so no, it, it wasn't easy at all. So we had to get creative, and we just worked the phones. I mean, we, we had, I think in the 91 season, we had sold about 1,600 season tickets. Okay. And so, you know, when I, I just, with uh, Edie, our ticket manager, and, and, and Bob Flynn, the intern who was helping her you know i just i told them i said we're not going to give up we're going to start with those 1600 people and you know you call them once and they say no i don't want to renew you're going to call them at least three times you're going to get three no's before you give up on okay you know so we just worked it hard uh and then we we did come up with some you know, fairly creative promotions, uh, things that, you know, uh, did not cut the price of tickets, but added value to them. Like we did uh, a Christmas package where you could get two sh- two T-shirts and two caps and a gift bag and two end zone tickets in the upper deck, all for $49. Okay. Well, I mean, no one... No one wanted to sit in the upper deck end zone, so very few people bought the $49. They said, well, how much is it to upgrade to the lower sidelines? There we go. <laughs> but they still, got their two, they still got their two T-shirts and their two caps and the gift bag. And, I mean, again, we just, we just worked it. You know, it's a matter of just rolling up your sleeves and working the phones. 
Now, you it, it's interesting you say that, and I, and I want to ask you this, because, you know, you, when people bring up season tickets, they bring up, you know, packages, they bring up uh, doing groups and stuff like that, and people are saying, ah, that's the easiest thing to do. Well, Eric, what, what are you able to tell them? I mean, because it, it sounds like it is not easy at all trying to get these people in the door, whether it be through season tickets or through these type of packages. Well, you would, the what always happens is, I mean, obviously the people who have the most money are the ones who can afford to spend it. Right. So because of that, your highest price seats always go first. Mm-hmm. You know that we had our our we had two rows of seats right behind the boards. We called our dream seats or something like that, and uh, you know those were like one hundred fifty dollars a game. I mean, it was no problem to sell those because it was a unique experience. Right, and so you know it was easy to sell the premium seats, and then it just got tougher as you get higher and further into the end zones behind the nets and so forth. Um, but again, it's, it's economics 101, it's supply and demand. The more you can shrink the supply, you increase the demand, which means you can raise the prices. And so, you know, the, the people over the years that made the mistakes in the leagues were the ones who discounted their ticket prices because in the arena league tickets was the only money you got right you didn't get parking you didn't get concessions you got a percentage of your merchandise but that wasn't much so tickets were your lifeblood and if you and if you you know you know it's like the the public gets trained you know uh, no one will pay full price for a car because, you know, if you wait 30 days, there will be some special. Yeah. Well, you know, if you train the public that, hey, if you wait long enough, these, you know, these guys are going to discount their ticket prices, then no one will pay full price. So that's yeah. why you have to do value added promotions where it looks like you're cutting your ticket price because they're getting extra stuff, but you're really not. They're paying full price and getting extra stuff. And, and you're just trying to do something where if you do these these giveaways, because I've dealt with it before, too, as a season ticket holder, you just want to make sure you're not going to tick off your season ticket holders by these specials that you're giving away to Joe Fan, who's going to come in for a three-game package or whatnot. You know, exactly. And, I mean, of course, we could do something in Orlando because at the time our capacity was 13-6 or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're like Bob over in Tampa or yeah. – uh, when Billy and Mike tried to do New Orleans for a couple of years in the Superdome, you just had, you know, there was no way you could create a buying urgency mm-hmm. among people. Or, or, you know, Bob's promotions where, you know, buy one, get one free, or buy one in the lower deck, get two free in the upper deck. And so he was putting out some impressive attendance numbers, but when he would put 25,000 people in his building and I'd put 13,000 in mine, I'd have twice the revenue. Yeah. And, and obviously at that time, not everybody could be Mike Illich where he basically had the building and he had, he was getting everything. He was getting right. everything. So he, he yeah, was, that, he, that he was, was, he was totally the, on, totally had advantage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So, 
Um, obviously, it paid off because the Predators, sure, they lost their very first game that year, but then, what, then they ran off nine straight in the regular season. And they were a you, your team was something to deal with because not only were you scoring, you were pulling off league firsts. I got to ask you, did you ever think that'd be possible that a, that a team could not score a single point in a game, which the Predators were, were a part of that year where they shut out the San Antonio Force 50 to nothing at home? Yeah, no, I mean, that was that that opening stretch of that season was was really incredible. You know, we went over to Tampa and lost a lost a close one. Then, you know, the the real Barry Wagner debut was in our second game when we went out to Sacramento and uh, Barry did a couple of things in that game where I was sitting up in the press box with our PR guy and we just looked at each other and said, you know, what is this? <laughs> you know, and then, you know, then I think we played New Orleans or somebody. Then we went to Detroit and that was the miracle minute, minute game. And then, or maybe I got, and then we came back and shut out San Antonio, or maybe we shut out San Antonio before the miracle minute game. But I mean, yeah, it was, but Frank, frankly, when it happened, I mean, in that season, we had the 50 to nothing win against San Antonio mm-hmm. and then, we also beat the Rattlers like 77 to 21 or something. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, you know, it just, you know, it was all happening so fast. You know, when you're, when you're managing an operation like that, there's just so much going on that you really don't have time to sit back and say, you know, wow, what, we, what did we just do? You know, it's like you, you know, you celebrate after the game. It's all the rah-rah stuff. You go have some cocktails, and the next morning you get up and you start working on the next week. You really don't have time to look back at it until the season's over. That, you know, like, it's just, like Perry Moss would do to his players, or a lot of coaches now these days do, go 1-0 and and then continue. Well, or, you know, what you know what they'd always tell them is, okay, you've got, got 24 hours. Enjoy this. Mm-hmm. Be careful. Take care of your teammates, and we'll see you on Sunday morning, Monday morning, or whatever, and start on the next one. Yeah. How how for you being uh, being an executive with the, with the league and part owner? How was it to how, how was it for your first playoffs that year? Because you guys hosted all three games, you know, you hosted the Arena Bowl, also. Yeah. What what was it like for you, knowing that between the ninety one and ninety two season, how close it came that the team did not the team also did almost did not come back. Yeah. Well, it, it was, uh, it was building momentum all year. Like I say, we lost the first one, then we ran off the 11 straight. And of course the whole concept of playoffs, you know, it got to be, you know, three or four weeks before the playoffs was started. And from an operation side, this, it becomes, Everybody's sitting around looking at each other and say, all right, how do playoffs work? Right. What are we supposed to do? How do, how do ticket sales work? How does this work? How does that work? And uh, so, I mean, obviously it was hosting, uh, whereas the, in those days, uh, I don't know how it was in later years, but at that time, the Arena Bowl actually belonged to the league. 
So even though it was in our building, we didn't get any of the money from that. That all went to the league. Okay. Because okay. because then they paid the, the the team shares and the game expenses and everything out of that. But you know the 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 quarterfinals and semifinals hosting those you know really helped us because we would make our our budget every year based on the regular season. So having two additional home games was you know a real. Uh, you know, a, a real shot in the arm as far as, you know, being good for the budget. But that that first that first ever playoff game uh, like the first weekend in August in 92 was was really cool because obviously it's you know, at, at that time, like the only other team that played in the same building, the Orlando Magic, mm-hmm. you know, they hadn't even sniffed playoffs. And uh, so the town was really starting to notice us. And that was that game began the multiple year streak of sellouts. Right. Okay. And then the other thing that was really cool about that game was um, that that morning I was in my office with uh, Tim Hips, our PR guy, and he had used to work for the Orlando newspaper and he got a tip from one of his buddies that uh, Shaquille O'Neal was going to sign his contract that day. His, he had been his very first contract. He'd been drafted that summer. Mm-hmm. And so he was in town. And so we decided we wanted to try and get Shaq to come do the coin toss for the game. So we, so, uh, Tim went over the, the Magic were having a press conference in the arena, so Tim went over to that to try and catch Shaq, and I went over to the hotel across the street to try and catch his parents, and we managed to get him to agree to come to the game, let let Shaq do the coin toss, uh, the, the coin toss, and we got them all in Orlando Predators T-shirts. So as uh, the, the Magic were running Shaq around town to do all the uh, – uh, 620 sports media experience uh, appearances on all the local TV stations, yeah. and he was wearing a Predators T-shirt, which was <laughs> which was awesome, rather than a Magic T-shirt. And then when he when he walked out on the field to do the coin toss, it was just the loudest I've ever heard that arena. I mean, so it was just a lot of lot of a cool, lot of cool things happening. And he came out there and shook the hands of our players and he dissed the Cleveland players, which, <laughs> which, you know, just fired up our crowd that much more. Now I have to try to get a, get a copy of that game. I, <laughs> I have to see that. That's great. You were that year. You were also named the executive of the year. And, and as I mentioned before, you know, the uncertainty of 91 to 92, how you guys started off the very first game of the season, but how you ended, even though you didn't come away with a title. How, how did it make you feel that, that the league gave you that the first ever Executive of the Year award? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it was special. Um, you know, it was... Uh, I just, we... You know, my whole attitude was... We don't want to be minor league. Okay? We are... We are, in all reality, minor league, but we don't have to act minor league. And so we did, you know, everything we tried to do all year, we tried to do first class. And uh, I remember we were, we were having, 
uh, we always had owners meetings uh, at the same time as the Arena Bowl. And uh, uh, we had managed uh, Detroit when they were flying in. Of course, they had the, the Red Wings jet. But uh, part of our responsibility as the host team was to prov- provide local transportation, bus pickup at the airport, take them to their hotel, that kind of stuff. Right. So knowing that they were coming in on the Red Wings jet, you know, I had the mascot, our cheerleaders, our bus, and I'd managed to get two or three of the local TV stations all out at the airport to film the plane coming in and Detroit coming in. And, uh, you know, which is just, I mean, it's kind of a, a major league approach to stuff. And, you know, it seems like small stuff, but it, at that point, six years into the Arena League, they hadn't done stuff on that scale as far as promotion and and, and media attention and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, remember, uh, we were in the owners' meeting, and Gary Vito walked in, and he had, of course, been on the plane with the team. He was the the GM of the Detroit team at the time, and he just walked in and said, you know, just was raving about this whole experience. Uh, you know, I can't believe what I just experienced. Never I thought I'd saw it, see it in the Arena League, you know, and, you know, just patting me on the back and thanking me and stuff. And, and then, you know, a few days later when we were at the the Arena Ball, the, the party the night before the uh, the game, when they give out all the awards, you know, yeah. you know Joe had had this plaque made up. And it was, you know, it was, it was pretty cool. It was very rewarding. Uh, where do you have that currently? Uh, it's at home in my home office. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Is it in a pr- uh, prominent location? Is it something where somebody would walk by it, ask about it, and you'd be able to tell them the story immediately? Well, I've kind of got it with you know some other stuff. You yeah. know, kind of. You know, I've got some things from golf. You know, pictures of you know pro am golf tournaments I played in with touring pros and stuff. Okay. So it's kind of been a collage with that. So sure. it's okay. kind of my sports wall. Okay. Um, obviously, as you said, 91 was the beginning uh, of a long, uh, a long period of time where, where Orlando became synonymous with being a powerhouse in the arena football league. Um, I know you were the, the, uh, you were the director of operations for nine, up through 94 with the Predators. Before you left the Preds, and we'll, we'll get to that here in a couple of minutes, um, was it frustrating for you being an owner, being, to, being so dominant, but yet not being able to get over that hump and to win an Arena Bowl championship? Or was that something that really didn't weigh on you at all? Well, no. Any, anybody who's involved in sports or involved in entrepreneurial business is a competitor you Mm want to win Mm -hmm. i mean we want you know it was the the people in the front office took it just as hard as the people in the locker room when we lost right and uh i I remember i mean we you know we kind of thought 92 was was a long shot we were happy to be there obviously we're kind of full of ourselves from from going 11-1 and earning the right to host. But, you know, uh, Arch Schleister was something else. I mean, you know, in that 92 game, you know, if you haven't seen it, that guy was 
battered, bruised, and busted, and he mm-hmm. just getting up. I mean, he would not be defeated. You know, just a complete tour de force. And uh, you know, then in uh, the '94 game, I mean, I I thought we had that one. It came right down to the last minute, the last 25 or 30 seconds, and I was standing in the end zone, you know, with some of my staff and we had the trophy on a table ready to bring out for the, you know, end of the game TV celebration. And, you know, Ben Bennett threw a pass and Alex Shell went up with both hands in the end zone and had the ball in his hands, like three feet in front of me. Uh. And a rattler paw came up and knocked it out between Alex's hands. And that was the end of the game. You know, it was just, you know, you, it, believe me, it's it's emotional, and you live it and breathe it. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. Now, besides being uh, Predator's Director of Operations, you, you, as I said, you, you wore so many hats during your career in the AFL. Um, obviously, you're an AFL board member um, uh, from 91 through 96, uh, but you're also a part of, a, you're also the chairman of the Expansion Committee and Relocation Committee starting in 94, but you got started earlier than that, actually. You got started off in 93. Uh, so you held the position unofficially in 93, being a part of the expansion committee? Because I know you were, you know, you were part of the approval for, uh, for the Fort Worth Cavalry, uh, the Las Vegas uh, Sting, and then the Milwaukee Mustangs yeah. in 93. So were you part of the, the group then? Yeah, the uh, there had been a lot of upheaval uh i'll just use that one adjective okay. <laughs> uh around the whole team state team sales process at that okay. time and uh there was a, a consensus developed that we needed to come up with a more organized process for both doing it disseminating information to prevent potential owners so they were prop properly aware of what to expect Mm -hmm. and that we should also do some kind of proactive vetting of people because basically up to that point, you know, there'd been a whole bunch of sketchy people coming and going Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the league operated teams and people coming up with, bogus letters of credit and you know just a bunch of weird stuff oh and uh, that's all i need is somebody who claims they have money and then they uh, for a team and then yeah you you get you get half i mean but that's that's been kind of a history of all sports unfortunately i I don't know what it is that attracts but you mean there's stories about the you know in the world football league the usfl you know, none of those leagues was ever stable for a whole season. Mm-hmm. And so the the Arena League was really no different. But so uh, when uh, at the end of the 92 season, uh, Davey Johnson sold his controlling interest to uh, Don Disney and Jim English. Yes. OK. And, and Don... Don had been the majority owner of the Renegades in the USFL. He'd been, he'd been a minority partner in uh, the World League Thunder. You know, at, at the same time, he was a limited partner, minority investor in the Predators. 
You know, he was an investor in the starting of the, the Tampa Bay Devil Rays baseball team and, you know, a major player in thoroughbred horse racing. Right. So, I mean, sports was in his blood. So uh, he, he took over, actually, that, that same day of that first playoff game in 1992. Okay. That, was, that was Don's first day as the majority owner and first game. But anyway, uh, Don... He's a very impressive individual. He's uh, in the hospital business, owns and operates hospitals. And uh, so he understands finance. And so he uh, he got appointed by his peers as the chairman of the expansion and relocation committee. And then, you know, because I was, you know, each team got two reps on the board, on the board. And so Don was, Obviously, he was the main money. He was the main one. And me as the operations guy, I was typically the other person who would go. Okay. And uh, so basically because Don had a very big business to look after, um, basically I did a lot of the work of the expansion relocation for him. Okay. Know, so we, we put together a, a whole prospectus that we presented and then – uh, came up with a procedure where people would write a option check. And then once we'd gotten their option check and the first set of documents for them, then, you know, I, or I, along with somebody else would travel to the cities where the prospective teams were going to be and do a little due, due diligence, not, you know, as much on the people as on the market to see if they had, you know, had an arena deal, if, mm-hmm. you know, there was support in the market and that kind of thing. So, okay. you know, but I mean, there were other involved, like when, uh, uh, when the Velazis in Milwaukee, uh, came aboard, uh, uh, I flew up there and Jim Foster drove up from Chicago and the two of us met with the Velazzi family and went to the Bradley center and kind of went through the whole, the whole thing with them. And, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, you know, I think when uh, uh, when Wood when Woody Kern came in with Fort Worth, uh, mm-hmm. I, I didn't. I don't think I went to Fort Worth. Somebody else went out there, but um, I had a lot of conversations with Woody's financial people, and then it was actually uh, uh, Mike Trigg okay. was was his head coach and GM, and and Mike came to Orlando for you know two and a half days or so of just you know, intense meetings and going through stuff, you know, what do you know? What do you need to know? Mm-hmm. That, that kind of thing. So, and, and, and it, it, I mean, obviously the two of the three names that you mentioned there that you're involved in in 93 are very well known these day, to this day in the arena football uh, league with Woody Kern and, and the Velazis. Um, no, and, and I mean, and, and, and Trig, I mean, there's a arena football winning coach. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, I just messaged back and forth with him the other day. You know, he's a good, you know, top-notch guy. Um, for those who may have not known, uh, especially because, you know, as fans, we really don't know the in, the inner workings when it comes to expansion. You've, I know you've, you've gone a little bit into it here. Um, at that time in 93, what, what did the league need monetarily from a group in order to be, to, to be considered to be an expansion franchise for the Arena Football League? 
Do you remember how much they had to pay? Um, you know, it was, and that was part of the problem. It was just all over the place in those years. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of what, uh, well, kind of cost some, cost some people their, their credo in the league. But, you know, it's like when we had, when we bought in with Orlando, supposedly our franchise fee in 1991 was $500,000. Okay. And it was supposed to be paid two fifty the first year, two fifty the second year. Okay. Well, we got to the board meetings at the end of the first year, and we found out that we were the only ones who had actually paid that. Oh boy! <laughs> you know, the 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 guy who had been allowed to come in in Columbus, supposedly he was paying the same thing, but he hadn't paid a dime. You know, and then it was also when. I think at those same meetings, we we're finding out that a deal had been made with the NBA teams in Arizona and uh, San Antonio, mm -hmm. and they both had been offered franchises for, I think it was a hundred and a quarter. So, yeah. so, no so obviously Orlando never paid that other two fifty. Yeah, no consistency. Wow. Yeah. So I I want to say I mean I know that. In 94, when Memphis and St. Louis and Connecticut and San Jose came in, I think it was up to a legitimate 600 at that point. But it was, again, you'd pay 300 the first year, 300 the second year. And it was kind of, you know, a little bit of a, a shell game because, mm -hmm. you know, basically, and, and they, but they do that in the major league too, you, you know, the major league sports too. You'll see when, you know, if a team joins the NHL, for instance, you'll read, well, they pay $150 million and then they give up shares of other revenues for like another three years. Right. And so you would join the arena league and, You'd pay half your fee, and then your other half of the fee would be basically paid from your share of the next year's expansion fees that you would never get. Okay. So it was kind <laughs> of, you know, it's a little bit of a shell game. So I mean, I I'm thinking prop in '93 they were probably still two fifty, three hundred, something like that, and then you know '94 it started to move up. Ah, so glad to get out of that dang time travel machine. Where'd you go? I went back to the 80s to grab some of that good, good sports merch from my favorite defunct franchises. I spent my life savings on that machine. You bought a time travel machine to buy sports merchandise? Yeah, gladly. You know you could have gone to 503 Sports, right? The, the website? Uh, yeah, no, I didn't think of that at all. Yeah, they sell all sorts of throwback sports merch from leagues like the World Football League, XFL, UFL, and the Arena Football League, several others. Uh, oh, 
shoe. Yeah, they sell hats, shirts, even custom jerseys from all sorts of vintage sports teams. Oh man, I spent like a lot of money on that time travel machine. Well, look, listeners of AFL Rewind get 10% off their first order by using the promo code ARENAFAN at checkout. That might help you out. Yeah, it does. Go on over to 503-sports.com and, and get your merch today. Do you know anyone who wants to buy like a overpriced time travel machine? No, no, sorry, I, I don't. Did you like the process of being on the expansion committee? Uh, was it, I mean, obviously you, take, you were taking things very seriously, but um, considering that what had not been, as I said, you, you had to come up with the, with the how, to, how much these teams are going to pay, how they're going to pay it, and, and to streamline the entire process, did you ever at one point regret being asked to join or deciding to join the expansion committee? Or is it just for you? It was just being a part of the part of the part of the AFL. Well, I mean, it was, you know, it was extra work on top of running the Predators, but it it was fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, you know, it was off season stuff. Uh, I'm I'm kind of a builder creator type. So, okay. you know, I, I get bored with doing the same thing day after day after day. So, you know having the opportunity to do the off season to, you know, fly, fly out to some city that maybe I hadn't been there before and meet a whole bunch of new people. And, you know, it's like when I, when I went to, uh, went out to Las Vegas to, uh, interview the, the, uh, Bill McFarland group who, who was the original, you know, they had, they had put bought the first option to have the team there. Okay. I mean, uh, it was, such a cool experience. They were actually building the uh, MGM Grand Hotel at the time, which had, you know, the 13,000 seat Grand Garden mm-hmm. Arena attached to it. And uh, the guy who was the head of the arena was name. Dennis, um, and he, he just kind of, you know, I had my meetings with my father and his owner group, and then they kind of turned me over to Dennis. It was a, a cool experience, and then something that not many people outside the league would ever have any reason to know, but mm-hmm. the uh, uh, the promoter of the fight we went to, it was Bob Arum, and uh, uh, the next morning after the fight, uh, Denny picked me up at my hotel and said, uh, i got somebody I want you to meet, and we go back over to Caesars, and we go up and walk into a suite, and here's Bob Arum and his Beverly Hills attorney both sitting around in bathrobes and in their suite, you know, Buddy <laughs> Mary's. And uh, Bob Arum wants to know all about arena football, you know, huh. so it was kind of cool. You know, sat there for a couple hours, and then Bob Arum actually wrote an option check for a second position on a Las Vegas franchise in case. The Farland group didn't go through, you know, so, you know, in 
in retrospect, maybe it would have been better for the league if Aram had gotten the team, but you know, that's not the way it worked. The other people had legitimately been first in line, put up their money, signed an option contract. And as long as they performed, it was theirs. And, you know, it would not have been right or ethical to bump them out of the way to take the bigger name guy. That's cool. That actually really is neat. Now, let me ask you, because obviously through, through, through AFL history, teams have had different chances in, you know, to have an Arena League team. You know, they've come, they've, le- they've come, they've left, they've left, they've come back again. In your opinion, what was it about Las Vegas? Was it the glitz? Was it the glamour? Or at this point in time of the AFL, it was just a matter of Las Vegas had the ownership where they felt that they, that the league could uh, could thrive. Um, I don't believe that there's any market that is intrinsically bad mm-hmm. for the sport. No, but every market is different. And so you have to figure out what will work. And I just think a lot of, a lot of times, you know, whether it's Las Vegas, whether it's other cities, people gave up too soon. Okay. And obviously their pocketbooks probably dictated that, (laughs) but no, but it's, it's like the group, the original group in Las Vegas, you know, if they had totally bought into all the branding and promotion that the MGM hotel, 5,000 room hotel where you never had to leave air conditioning between that hotel and the arena. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they had totally bought into that partnership, I think they would have been a success. But somewhere during that season, the relationship went sour. Uh, I'm not sure the details. And so they made the decision to move over to Thomas and Mac for the next season and uh, uh, for the 95 season. Yeah. And that was not a success either. I mean, what, uh, what you heard the people saying was, oh, uh, Las Vegas people won't go to the Strip because they don't want to be around tourists. Mm-hmm. Well, which, you, there's, which, you, which you still hear today. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's probably some validity to that. I mean, you had that in Orlando with the theme parks. Some people didn't want to go to the end of town where the theme parks were because they're worried about the traffic. No, that's but, yeah. but again, it's that's such a simple kind of statement that's, you know, so easy to make you give up and just mm-hmm. say, okay, uh, I guess that's true. So it's never going to work on the strip, yeah. you know, instead of focusing on what advantages do the strip have? I mean, on a Friday or Saturday night, how many tens of thousands of people are on the strip? And how can I get them to come in out of the heat for three hours, mm-hmm. sit here, have some some beers, and watch a game that they can walk a hundred feet and place a bet on? It's true. Yeah. Now, being on the being on the uh, expansion and relocation board, uh, were teams tied into 
how many years that they had to say that they were going to be in the league. Because we heard in later years where they were, you know, like I'll give an example. I think it was the Pittsburgh Power, a three-year contract with the league itself. At that time, was the league saying you have to be in the league in X amount of years? No. I mean, you you can't. It's it's like belonging to a club. You can't force them to be a member. Right. You know, if, if they no longer want to come and eat dinner or play golf or whatever you do at that club, yeah, you, you, you can't go out and handcuff them and drag them there. Right. So, you know, we had, um, again, you know, tried a bunch of different things, you know, where, you know, people would have to post a $100,000 or $250,000 letter of credit you know, like a performance bond, you know, okay. that could be drawn upon if they if they didn't. But usually, you know, if someone didn't come back, they were so upside down, not paying their bills, that you need that money to pay their player payroll or something. Right, right. So, okay. you, you know, certainly when and, you know, by that time you realize, hey, this person doesn't have enough money. It's not worth spending $200,000 in legal fees in federal court over the next two or three years to force them to do something they don't want to do. Okay. Makes sense. Now, 95 for you. Now, you'd already been with a very successful franchise since 91, a major part of in the head office. Um, how did you get involved with the, expand- with the expansion of Memphis Pharaohs? Well, you know, the old, the old Godfather line. I got an offer I couldn't refuse. <laughs> now, no, were you there I, originally I just, as a partner, or did they ask you to come on as GM? But they, but they offered you a partnership. No, no, they that was part of the deal from day one. Okay, uh, you know, be the you know executive VP and general manager and and a limited partner and. Uh, uh, you know, so, you know, I had, you know, the, the, the percentage was good. The salary was good. The relocation stipend was good. And, you know, again, I'm a, a creator builder kind of thing. And, you know, in, in Orlando, you know, by that point we had, you know, sold out every game for two and a half years. We're selling every season ticket we could. We're doing great in the sponsorship area and, you know, it was just kind of a, a time for a change of scenery. And uh, I had been to Memphis the year before uh, reviewing an expansion candidate that did not come through. Okay. And uh, uh, had met the people at, at the Pyramid Arena and developed a nice relationship. And actually the the guy at the time, Jerry McDonald, who was running the pyramid, uh, had previously been in Lakeland, Florida, and he had been the boss of the lady who was the manager of the Orlando arena. So, you know, it was at that, that time there were like two or three companies that managed all the arenas in the United States. So like everybody knew everybody and, and, that particular company was Leisure Management, and then the okay. Spectacor out of Philadelphia had a whole bunch of the other arenas. So, you know, so so anyway, I I liked the town. I had established a relationship. My uh, uh, 
my ex-wife uh, at, at the time, she uh, uh, had gone to the University of Alabama, which wasn't that far away and kind of like the whole deep south thing. And we had friends there. She had sorority sisters there. So we thought, let's let's try it. What were the challenges versus what you did for the startup of the Predators versus the Memphis Pharaohs? How different were they? Um, not because you're basically stand- starting from scratch. Yeah, and you know, but you at that point you've got the benefit of experience. I mean, you know, you know the things you need to do. You know the the checklist, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, but then the challenge is figuring out the market and figuring out what what will work because the way it's presented in Orlando is not necessarily going to make it work in another city. Um, but, uh, we had to figure that out. And then actually not long after we had announced our team and set up shop, then here come the Memphis mad dogs. Yes. And, and, uh, of course they were, more, you know, their ownership was Fred Smith of FedEx and their head coach was Pepper Rogers, both of whom were, you know, deeply rooted in that community. So, you know, we were, so we had the, the added challenge of being perceived as the outsiders against the old boys. Uh, but we were both playing some weird version of football indoors. They were playing CFL ball. Yep. Uh, neither which most people had seen, but uh, you know we just to figure out what would work in the in the market and and build an organization from scratch. And one of the things that that I remember the most about the Pharaohs franchise is you you were able to market the team um, basically to the name itself. Still to this day. You know, even though the Pharaohs came in the same year that the Iowa Barnstormers did with the, which everybody calls the iconic goggles, right? You still have a very unique headdress set up on the on the helmets yeah, for the Pharaohs. I, very unique, and I don't think anybody had seen anything like that in football. At no, all. no, never. I mean, we're we're really proud of that. That was, you know, that was that was a cool look, and of course the whole. You know, Memphis, the ancient capital of mm-hmm. Egypt, it's on the Nile. We're on the Mississippi. We've got the Pyramid Arena. I was about to say, you're you know, playing in a pyramid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was, there was just, it was a no-brainer. We had to be the pharaohs. That was, yeah, uh, the, at any time. So uh, compared to the Predators, almost pharaohs was almost the name from the beginning. That, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, always... There's certain things when you're starting a team, you always need to go through the motions. Right. So you you have a name the team contest and someone can win some season tickets and, you know, you have player tryouts. There's, you know, this, you know, the basic things that you're always expected to do. But yeah, we, we knew that it was going to be Pharaohs from day one. And again, still today, I think it's, it's an, one of the iconic looks, you know, it's funny. That people say, oh, well, they look too much like the Arena League. You know, uniforms look like the Arena League or the names look like the Arena League. To me, that's a compliment because the Arena League came up with some very unique looks. Oh, there's, you know? there's, so, there's so much stuff that started in the Arena League that, that 
cross-pollinated into the you know the four major leagues whether mm-hmm. it's you know play playing music between plays and yeah. you know getting more creative with logos and uniforms and all uh-huh. that yeah yeah a lot of stuff came out of the arena league yeah. or even more recently when it comes to uh transparency uh transparent uh replays even yeah. so it's so. you know mike mike's in the huddle and mm-hmm. quarterbacks mic'd up all that kind of stuff people forget that and it's true that because people forget that there were mike they were mic'd up coaches in year one on espn a lot of people forget that yeah so um why why was don freeze your head coach that year um well we we interviewed six people for a head coach mm-hmm and, uh, you know, I, you know, just like I gave credit to other people in Orlando, I give tons of credit to the late Pete Catella for helping me put that organization together. And, uh, uh, you know, when, when I was putting, starting to put the team together, um, and I called up Gene Nudo in the league office and I asked him, I said, who, who should I bring in as my director of football operations? And he said, there's one name in the league. That's Pete Catella. You need to get him out of Arizona. You know, and I, and I called Brian Colangelo and he gave me permission to talk to Pete and, and, uh, uh, actually just, you know, again, right place, right time. It happened that Pete's father-in-law, was living in Memphis and was elderly and ill. So it was a chance for he and his wife to move and be closer to her father in his declining state. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Pete's the one who had from, he's, he was from a very impressive football tree, uh, going back to Jack Christensen and Bill Walsh, Walt Harris, all these West coast offense guys. You know, in addition to uh, Pete's background in the NFL and the, and the CFL. And uh, so Pete had spent some time, well, again, all these guys had been in all these different leagues. I mean, that PSFL that we talked about earlier that net yeah. never got off the ground in 92. Yeah. Pete, Pete was the head coach of, I don't know, the Carolina team or something. Okay. And... Uh, uh, Daryl Rogers, another wonderful man who just passed away a couple of years ago. He was coach of the Arkansas team. Well, I, I knew Daryl going back to, to Michigan State when I was an undergrad and he was our head coach. But uh, so Daryl was one of the other people we interviewed besides Don and uh, uh, Tim Markham called me up and recommended that we look at a guy named uh, Larry Keck, who had been the, the, uh, uh, he had coached with Tim in Detroit one season. I'm not sure which, and then he had been the offensive coordinator at, at uh, Ole Miss and their mm-hmm. staff had just gotten fired. You know, so, you know, there were about six guys, but Don, uh, you know, Don had the right background. You know, he had, uh, he had paid, played defensive back at Oregon. Uh, he was there at the same time John Hadle was. Uh, he had been the wide receivers coach under Bill McCartney on the 
Colorado national championship team, uh, you know, when uh, Jerry DiNardo, who had been the offensive coordinator of that team, when he got the head job at Vanderbilt, he took Don Vanderbilt with him as his offensive coordinator. And uh, so DiNardo had just left Vanderbilt to go to LSU and, and didn't take Don with him. So Don was available. And also in Don's background, he had, in the USFL, he had coached for the Denver Gold under Mouse Davis. Well, you know, Mouse helped Jim Foster design the game of arena football. Yeah, It's all based on the Mouse Davis run and shoot. Mm-hmm. So here's a guy that he's got a national championship ring from college. He's paid, played major college football. He's been an offensive coordinator. In, in D1, and he's got a run-and-shoot background, West Coast offense background. So it was, and he and Pete had known each other, so it was a good fit. Yeah. Um, which do you find to be more successful, your first year with the Pharaohs or the first year as with the Predators? I mean, record-wise, well, the, the, yes, the Pharaohs were better, Yeah, but in your opinion. Well, no, I, I think the, the first year with the Pharaohs, I, I would take, I think, 95, the Pharaohs did better than the Predators did in 91. Mm-hmm. You know, but selfishly, I wasn't running the Predators in 91. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but, but again, we had, we had the benefit of experience. Um, you know, I had a rock-solid football operation and, you know, pretty darn solid front office staff. And uh, like I say, we you know, went six and six and made the playoffs. And, you know, uh, Pete found us some, some great players out of the West Coast, Troy Kopp, Jeff Russell, Ryan Benjamin. You know, we we had some players on that team. Yeah. Um, seems to be a big change for you in 96. Uh, why the step away from the Pharaohs? To be a consultant for... Gridiron Enterprises for the European division with Bill, Bill Nero and, and Jerry Kurz. Yeah. Well, um, the when we got into the first off season with the uh, Pharaohs, it became clear that there was a bit of a, a schism in the ownership group. Mm-hmm. We had. Uh, had a had a great group of guys. I mean, I, I loved all of them. Um, you know, Kevin Hunter was the lead guy initially. He passed away a couple of years ago, and you know, it was just sorry to see him gone at such a young age. But uh, there were just some some things that were happening that I wasn't comfortable being associated with. Okay. So part of my agreement when I went up there is I had in my contract that I had an out clause that I could exercise by a certain date and they had to pay me a certain amount of money. And so I could kind of see the way things were headed going into 96. And actually, I think we had two preseason games in 96. Uh, Like we played... Charlotte 
in Birmingham, and then we went down to Palm Beach and played the Bobcats, and uh, we lost both those games. And back back in Memphis, things weren't looking so hot, so I just I exercised my option and went back to Orlando. Okay. How'd you get, uh, um, before you, we, we talk about your experience with the gridiron and the, and the, Euro, uh, the European stuff. Uh, you also had a hand in, a, 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 you were part of the uh, relocation committee to help approve of David Baker's group to move the team from Las Vegas, which we talked about just a little mm-hmm. while ago, to Anaheim. Yeah. And everybody knows where 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 Commissioner Baker is now. He became the commissioner. He's now the president of the uh, of the Professional Hall of, uh, Football Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. What that was, was kind of kind of all. You know, obviously the after the '95 season. You know, the McFarland group. They had tried MGM Arena. They had tried Thomas and Mac, and they're ready to throw in a towel. And you know, it was clear to everyone in the league that you know. If they didn't find a buyer, they were probably gonna gonna sell. So when uh, I don't remember whether Jim Drucker found Baker's group or whether it was actually the McFarland people in Las Vegas who found them and brought them to us, but uh, um, you know Dave David Baker was he was kind of the the lead guy in the group, but he was you know he had two very big money rock solid investors with him so you know the the deal was not done because of david baker it was done because of the guys with the money behind david baker okay and 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 and, you know but then you know going a little further down the line you know it's obvious that uh you know they must have because they weren't that successful in Anaheim. They must have churned through a bunch of money out there, and that's a very expensive money I operate in. Yep. So, you know, the the money guys were probably reaching the point where they're sitting across the table looking at Baker and saying, you know, we're not going to do this much longer. You know, either, either fix it or we're out of here. Mm-hmm. And so... David created his own exit strategy to go to the league and become commissioner. Yeah. Now, all the times that you were part of the uh, relocation and expansion committee, because I think that went another year to 96. Um, what was the franchise that you had the most fun bringing into the league? Oh, gosh. <laughs> God. I, I can't put one above another because I mean they all, you know, they were all brand new toys at the time, and you know mm-hmm. we were wishing everybody nothing but success. And uh, it's like I think when in your podcast you did with Bob Grease, he kind of hinted at it. Uh, you know, uh, every year at some, you know, we typically would have four face-to-face board meetings, and then you know, multiple teleconferences right. uh, every year, but, you know, was was like clockwork. At one of those four meetings every year, Bob Grace was saying and said, we ought to pass a rule that nobody's allowed to speak 
board meetings until they've lost a million dollars. You know, because, you know, you have people who are fresh into it. They've never owned or operated a sports team or done any kind of event business in the past. You know, maybe they've, you know, they've been extremely successful doing something else, making a product, selling a product, something. And be, people generally, when they're really successful at something, think they're going to be successful at everything. Right. And they come in and they're all full of vim and vigor and, you know, why don't we do this? Why don't we change this? Let's spend money on that. And the people who've been around it for a little while and know, okay, we tried that and lost money now. We tried that. That was unsuccessful. So it was, uh, so it was fun to, to watch each new group come in and how they made it and so forth. And I just, I just, I wish more had been successful and we'd still have a league. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing I found was weird in 95, you know, part of that expansion for St. Louis, you know, we, uh, a game just popped up recently on YouTube where they, sh- it was a home game for them. And I, and I happen to see that their boards are like up to their ankles. They're not a full size board. And I'm like, that made no sense to me. I, I, I don't know if you guys had any say, cause Obviously, it's the team that's putting up the boards and stuff like that. But those little things, I think, to me, stand out. But yeah, I'll, I'll have to go look for that because we <laughs> we played the the first or second game of the '95 season. I think it was. We went up there and played them yeah. in the Keel Center, and I yeah. I don't remember anything unusual like that. I'll have to I'll have to find it and send you the 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 timestamp specifically because I I noticed it the other day and, I, and you know it's funny I think it was Memphis playing at St Louis but anyways, I'll, I'll find it and I'll send it to you but right. one last thing before we talk about the uh, the European uh, portion of, of your career um, can you give us a little bit of insight on the sale uh, or the moving the moving of Fort Worth to Mexico City. And then the failure of that team to start up. Can you can you get any, give any insight on that? Yeah. Uh, well, of course, you know Woody had the team in Fort Worth the one year, and then uh, uh, he bought Tampa from Bob, and so he was looking to dispose of uh, Fort Worth. And there was a fellow by the name of Doug Logan who Doug is bilingual, Spanish and English, and he'd been in the event promotion business forever. And I think he knew Jim Drucker. Okay. You know, from the business. And whether Drucker approached him or he approached Drucker, whatever. Anyway, so they, they came up with the idea and everyone thought it was was pretty neat. I mean, everybody was on board. Let's do it. Uh, this will be special. It's, you know, again, something else PR wise that will set us apart from other leagues being, being truly international with a regular season schedule, not just exhibitions. Right. But then, then there was some, uh, oil crisis or financial crisis or something that happened in Mexico that severely devalued the peso and it became apparent that uh it was gonna 
dramatically financially affect not only the Mexico City teams, but teams that went down there to play them. And so it, it just the, the, the mood uh, of the board changed as far as having the team in Mexico City. And then about that, you know, during that same relative period of time, uh, Doug Logan got hired as the first commissioner of the MLS. Okay. Right. And so then that's when Tom Scallon and the Minnesota fight, Fighting Pike came into the picture. Okay. Okay. Because, again, you know, these guys in, in the event promotion business, in the arena operation business, there's a lot of people who know each other. And... Jim Jim Drucker from having been in the C, the Continental Basketball Association previously, you know he knew a lot of these arena people around the country, and uh, so that was you know one of the benefits to him when he was brought in as commissioner that you know he had those contacts, uh, notwithstanding his relationship with Joe O'Hara. But uh, uh, I think that. Either Jim or Doug or maybe both of them knew Tom Scallon in Minnesota. And at the time, Tom Scallon owned the Harlem Globetrotters. So, you know, he knew how to put on sports events and how to run sports events and things. So even though it was kind of late in the off season, everyone thought, well, you know, this guy's got a fighting chance of pulling it off. So that's that's kind of how Minnesota came about for 96 okay. instead of Mexico City. Yeah, because I, I remember I'm looking at the – and I remember seeing this specifically because it was, it was, as you said, it was putting the Arena Football League on the map because in September on September 27th of 94 – in the New York, I mean, this made the New York Times. This is at the time also where the AP is covered everywhere, also, mind you. But yeah. arena football set for Mexico City. Yeah. And it, it gave the league, I think, that little bit of off-season push that they needed at that time. No. But as you, but as you said, finances, are all as we're seeing even today, finances can can be the death of everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I mean. And of course, the the same issues came up when uh, uh, you know when the subject of of Canadian franchises came up. You know the same mm-hmm. kind of issues: ex- exchange rates, travel costs, uh, customs, taxes. I mean, just there's 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 a lot of things that you know the average person doesn't realize come into play. That's true, because for the longest time, Vancouver was always a part of the rumors. To be a, to be a, there was an ownership group looking to bring a team to Vancouver or yeah. Toronto, and it's funny the differences how things I guess somewhat changed between that time when you were on the expansion committee to when the Phantoms came in in two thousand one. Mind you, it was through a move, but still right. how things have changed even today. The board no, is a lot the board is a lot different than it was the, uh, back then. Yeah, and then you know of course we had the you know going back to. 95, 96, or 95 anyway, we had the, uh, you know, the, the CFL mm-hmm. in, in, you know, I guess 93, 94, 95. And, 
you know, with teams in the United States. And, you know, that caused a big upheaval too. you know, it, it uh, affected potential markets. Uh, it uh, affected the availability of coaches and players. Mm -hmm. And so all that, you know, you don't operate in a vacuum, you know, you're, you're affected by everything else around you. I mean, and, and people need to remember, too, that the league did try, besides the European exhibitions, they did bring a preseason exhibition to uh, to Hull, uh, Quebec, which is just outside of Ottawa, in 92. It was the, the Detroit and Tampa Bay, if I remember correctly. No, Albany. Albany and Tampa yeah. Bay yeah. in 92. So it's not that the league didn't try. It's there are more variables and more factors that fans need that fans did not know about that were, you know, that, that, you know, were, that the league was looking at. And, and a lot of those, you know, those exhibition games, again, you know, um, they were uh, underwritten by the arena operator in that city, you know, maybe along with a potential owner, you know, trying to, you know, as, you know, so... Yeah. You know, as you know, that one in Quebec was, you know, uh, the, the, they failed the test. <laughs> so. Well, they failed the test, too, but also I thought it was interesting. If And I'd love to be able to speak with somebody who knew more about it, but it's the first time that technically the CFL and the Arena Football League went head-to-head, so to speak, because the game was originally supposed to be in Ottawa, but because of the CFL ownership group with the Ottawa Rough Riders at that time. The Glebermans. Yeah, they didn't want you there. They were yep. saying, oh, this, that, and the other. But it's it's basically different sports trying to get people to come in and pay money to watch their sport. But, I mean, it's... Yeah. And, 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 again, like we were talking about just the relationship, you know, before we got on the air, the relationship between Arena Fan and the Arena League for, you know, it's, it's, it's short-sighted. You know, it, just because you're two different leagues doesn't mean... One necessarily has to be a winner and one necessarily has to be a loser. Mm -hmm. If you do it right, you both can be winners. Yes. Yeah. Um, very interesting subject here that I'm really pumped to hear about. And as I said, you were a consultant for Gridiron Enterprises, Jerry Kerr's Bill Nero, with uh, the European development. And in 96, that, you know, there have been exhibitions before that have been going on. You yourself had been in or part of the organization and the presentation of the European exhibition since 91. But um, what, what attracted you to trying out just exhibitions? Because obviously, it's more than just a, a single game than just putting on a single game in one different city. What, what, what pulled you into that uh, to, to join Bill and, uh, and Jerry? Well, I mean, you're talking about, you know, the, the tours of Spain and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was, well, again, they were, they were looking to expand their footprint over there. And, um, again, it's, it's all about partnerships and relationships and the partner that Gridiron had in Paris was just this wonderful gentleman who was part American, part French, named Andy Dixon. His, his father had been a uh, U.S. Air Force pilot in the Second World War and 
had stayed over there after the war, married a French gal and became a boxing promoter. And okay. his son grew up in the pro promotion business. And the way arena event, well, and stadium event promotion works in most European cities is each city, each arena will have a relationship with a small group of promoters, you know, two, three, four guys. And those are the only guys who can bring events to that building. It's not like in the United States where everything's wide open. Anybody with money can try and do something. Right. So, uh, because these relationships are very controlled, there's a lot of partnerships developed across borders. So like, you know, Andy, he's got an exclusive at the Pelé Omnisport Bercy, but, you know, he may know Jose down in Madrid, who's got an exclusive at that marina, that arena, and they each want to do business in each other's building. So they do business together. They build joint ventures and cooperative deals. And so all these relationships with the other arenas around Europe all flowed out of Andy Dixon's relationships with these other buildings okay. combined with, you know, Bill and Jerry's desire to expand the footprint with the ultimate goal of trying to establish a league over there. Mm -hmm. And at that, at that 96 game, uh, in Paris, we had people from, uh, every American football federation board from every country in Europe there in Paris for the game, for meetings, presentations, you know, we had people from, you know, the, the major countries playing American football or, or France, Germany, and Italy. But then you've got the UK, Finland, Spain. You know, there's a lot of kind of pro-am leagues over there, people playing American football. And uh, over the years, I'd built some relationships, particularly with uh, a couple of guys that had the had uh, a couple of teams in, in Munich, Germany. And uh, I went over several times and went to like the uh, Euro Cup or whatever they called the, their championships. And and uh, just over a couple of years got to know a lot of these other people. So, you know, you know, we were working hard to try and, and get people interested in maybe having a league over there. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, um, you know, unfortunately, it just, you know, again, it uh, comes down to, to money. Who's got the who's got the money to invest? Um, you know, the, the structure over there is a little different because everything, even the, you know, the big uh, Champions League soccer teams, they're all clubs. And, you know, in most of their cities, they don't ha they don't even have to pay rent for their arena or their stadium you know, because they're a kind of a nonprofit club structure. Yeah. You know, except for the ones that American billionaires have gone over there and bought in the last decade. But, uh, so there, it didn't take a lot of money to get things started over there, but it just, it kind of never 
develop that critical critical mass where you know you have two or three people starting to say, "Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. What about you? You come in too." And you know, to get six or eight to start with. And the talk for the talk for the European League went all the way back. I think, if I'm not mistaken, was 1990. At least that was in the. Uh, newspaper or the, the 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 football magazines back then. I think it was like yeah. first and ten or something like that, or or the local newspapers there where the the game was played. Well, and, and yeah, and I mean you had where she had again. It's a uh, it's all about business, and mm-hmm. you had you know Bill, Jerry, Jim Foster, and a fourth partner, Mark Higley. They owned Gridiron which Gridiron owned the patent once the patent was issued in 1990. Yeah. And then there was a, they were able to get a sec- second patent in Europe. So even after, you know, th- so actually the, the impetus came even more for them to try and develop a European league after they sold the patent to the arena league in you know, to the U.S. league, they just, they sold the U.S. patent. They did not sell the foreign patent. They kept that. So, uh, okay, okay. So when they sold the U.S. patent to the Will Maris group in 97, 98, whenever it was, then, you know, that gave them even more impetus. Okay, we've cashed that out. We're not going to get any more royalty payments. We're not going to get any more money from the U.S. So let's see if we can do something with it overseas. Okay. It's interesting. Actually, it's one thing I didn't know. I did not know that the Great Iron had sold it off. That, that's cool to find out. I mean, also, I mean, it's funny that the, the first year that you become a consultant, it, it can't hurt that you have Kurt Warner playing Eddie Brown in Paris. Uh, that was awesome. And on top of that, which I don't know if you know, just recently, that game has been put onto YouTube. Yeah, I, I, I watched it. Yeah. And- Saw, saw myself wandering through the background a couple of <laughs> but yeah I mean one of the, one of the cool things with that with with that uh, whole group of people that we had from all these uh, European leagues there I mean we're all staying in the same hotel the players from the two teams the coaches all you know these prospective European owners and I had also uh, there were a couple of guys, like one was from Wheeling, West Virginia, another guy from Philadelphia, I think. Um, there were sports agents. And I had brought, you know, kind of lower level sports agents uh, who I who had some experience placing U.S. players on some of these European teams. Okay. And uh, so I had brought invited a couple of them to come along and sit in on the meetings too, to basically assure the potential European owners that they have no problem getting some American players, you know, to, to seed their teams. And, uh, but kind of observing all these meetings and these activities and everything was Kurt Warner. And, uh, one evening when my, wife and I were walking back in the hotel lobby after dinner. The players would typically just congregate around tables in the hotel lobby. And uh, I walked in and, and Kurt got up and 
said, you know, can I talk to you a minute? And kind of pulled me aside. My wife went on up to our room and uh, we went over to the bar and had, had, a, had a beer. And he said, uh, or I had a beer. He didn't. But uh, uh, he actually said, why don't you be my agent? Those, those words came out of Kurt Warner's mouth wow, in Paris. Cool. <laughs> and I wasn't an agent. I didn't have any interest in being an agent. Uh, I had kind of researched it at one. And at that point, to become an NFL agent, you had to go to, there was a course that the NFL PA sponsored. That was, at, mm. I think, at the University of Wisconsin. It was like a one-week course. You had to pay 1800 bucks go through this one week course, take a class, and then you were a registered NFL PA agent. And, you know, I, I gave it about 30 seconds thought and said, maybe I should spend the 1800 bucks. And, and I said, <laughs> said, no, Kurt, I'm not an agent. And I walked him over and introduced him to uh, the guy, Kim John, something or other, the guy from West Virginia. I said, now this guy is a sports agent. Why don't you talk to him? <laughs> And the rest is history. I'm about saying rest is history. He, he gets signed. I, I, didn't he find out in Paris that he 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 was going to the World League? Um, no, I think? I think it was was later on after that because at, okay. at that at that time, um, you had to be nominated to the World League by uh, an NFL team. Okay. The the World League teams could not sign you. Now, I mean if if a world league coach really wanted you, wanted you, you know, he'd get one of his buddies in the United States to put you on one of those, you know, thousand player off season rosters. So mm -hmm. you could get, so you could get, get nominated. But, uh, I think it was a, it was a while after that before he actually, you know, got his spot. And I think it was, uh, uh, seems I know his agent was from Chicago, but I don't know whether it was the Chicago Bears that nominated him or or somebody else. But. Okay. Um, after 96, there doesn't seem to be, at least that I could do through research, because I've, I've done quite a bit of historical research on the European exhibitions, but there doesn't seem to be any more games in Europe post-1996, because is, is, Paris seemed to be the city that the league yeah. always went to, always went to, because they always drew. Well, and, always and that, drew. And that's also because they had a 10-year contract with Coca-Cola that was paying 100 grand a year to put on that game. Ah, uh, okay. That's okay. Did not know that. That's that, that's interesting. Okay, so, so contract so so 89. 96 was the last year of, of that contract. Though maybe it wasn't a 10-year, maybe it was eight years. Okay. But uh, anyway, 96 was the last year of the contract. Uh, I think Coca-Cola was willing to renew, but uh, you know, the, ter the terms were going to be different. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it was just, we had gone through uh, that 96 game. If you watch that tape, there was yeah. there was nobody there. And, no. and I know I had put a comment on, on YouTube, don't know whether you saw it, but the, the reason why there was a huge transportation strike that week. Oh, that was your comment. Okay. Now, okay. Yes. I yeah, do remember so the, seeing that. So the sub, the subways are down. So nobody could get there. They actually, you know, the, the people who did get there either had to pay for very expensive taxis, walk miles, or they had even the city of Paris set up water taxis on the Seine, you know, to, 
so people could move about the city and the the arena uh the palais on this floor sits right on the seine river in paris okay so people could actually take water taxis but yeah i mean it always had always had been mostly full and but there was that and then either one or two years prior to that there was something else i want to say like a air traffic controller strike or something but like two out of those last three years there were major events that affected it and caused the game to lose money and have lower yeah. attendance and so forth so that kind of took a little bit of the the bloom off the rose over there isn't that kind of why because uh, i know because i know you did quite a few of the games is that kind of why they only went to uh, Germany once because that we, that that game is also available too. It's just that there's hardly anybody in the crowd in Frankfurt. Yeah, yeah, just uh, um, just didn't just didn't work for whatever reason. Yeah, you know, I, um, I really was involved in the promotion of that, and then you right. know, like the 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 Spanish games. I mean, they they did reasonably well. Um, but they were all in, in really, most of them, except for the Barcelona, were in small arenas. Okay. You know, so, I mean, you know, 4,000, 5,000 seat arenas. Ah, and, okay, uh, okay. But, right. So uh, in uh, Granada or in Madrid and Zaragoza, in 95, they were in smaller arenas. Smaller arenas, and, you know, same thing when we were in, uh, I guess that was either 90, maybe that was 96 also when it was... Uh, Oviedo and Barcelona. Uh, yeah, that was that was late '95. Sorry, I have to yeah. mention that too. Yeah, late '95. Yeah. Okay. So, um, also, it did, from what I saw too from the Paris game, as much as the game itself changed in North America, it seemed that it's funny how the the the, the field and the game system itself. Did, you know, it, it was stuck in time, so to speak. It was stuck back in nineteen. It was stuck back in 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 nineteen ninety or nineteen eighty nine, whenever the first one. You know, when eighty nine yeah. when the first one occurred, because there were the boards were back. There were sidelines once again. Um, <laughs> yep. Well, and of course, of course that that was all determined by arena floor size. Sure. You know, and and that's that's a big arena there because they have. Olympic ice, and then actually something you can't really see from the 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 TV pictures, but it's really cool. There's actually a velodrome built into that arena. Oh, cool! And okay. about the lower, maybe one third of the seats are removable, and then they expose that bicycle racing track. And Which, if if people don't know that velodromes go at a very steep incline. Yeah, it's it's crazy when you'd walk through the the tunnels, the field ent- entrance from the the backstage areas, and you'd pass and see a section of the velodrome track underneath the stands. That's <laughs> scary steep. <laughs> um, what did you do for for the last couple of years as you're uh, that you were a consultant, considering that there weren't there were there doesn't seem to be any more games from from '96, and it doesn't seem to be in any European city after that. What, what did you do to assist them? Well, what we did is we we took a different approach. I mean, they, they had tried the exhibition games for eight or nine years. 
we had made the effort to try and attract uh, owners to create a league via the football federations over there, and that hadn't worked. You know, you know, we'd attracted a lot of attention, but you know, the ultimate goal wasn't met. So, uh, what we did is we tried to because even after uh, Gridiron had sold the U.S. patent, mm-hmm. uh, one thing that they still had rights to under contract was they got all the game tapes, all the TV game tapes from every U.S. game that was on TV, whether it was a local, regional, or a national broadcast. So there, we had a huge library of, you know, uh, original, you know, master tapes, if you will, of all these games. Right. So um, kind of about, you know, in the, in the late, 90s, uh, I had invested in a business in Orlando that was a uh, film and video uh, post-production company. And we had had editing studios to do TV work and commercials and so forth. So uh, with with that facility available, we got to you know got together with Bill and Jerry and. Uh, we decided that we would try and repackage the TV broadcasts and see if we could syndicate them in foreign TV markets. Okay. So we would actually bring, bring tapes in and, you know, cut them, put new voiceovers and so forth. And then for two or three years, uh, each fall, there's a big international sports television trade show in Monaco. Okay. So we went, we went to Monaco for those two or three years and had a, had a booth in the trade show and, you know, made, made connections with people all over the world and, you know, tried to syndicate arena football game tapes. So that was, so that was, that was kind of the effort then. And, uh, we had a, little, had a little success in the Far East, uh, in Japan, and uh, but that was about it. And again, it was kind of cool to go to Monaco for a week each year. And, yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> Who uh, wouldn't uh, want to go to Monaco, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think it did, if I'm not mistaken, from what you guys were doing, uh, as I said, having success in the Far East, I think it also led to what was, you know, after the AF2 was, was created— uh, them having their, their uh, a camp there in Australia and New Zealand, etc. I think that led to that Pacific Rim training camp. That's what it was called, Pacific Rim training camp. Yeah. So, well, I mean, um, I mean, Jerry, you know, just whatever else he was doing, whether it was AF two, whether it was commissioner of the league, you know, Jerry never gave up, you know, chasing the overseas dreams, and you know, nope. to, you know, whether it was, you know, finally getting. Uh, uh, Jaworski and Judge involved in the China League, or you know, like I say, the the training camps in Australia. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, there's, again, there's only one way to expand the footprint is to roll up your shirt sleeves and go do it. Exactly. And if I'm not mistaken, and I don't know if you know this or not, because when the history that I, the, the research that I was doing, 
of the uh, European stuff, I came across that, you know, Jerry seemed to be all in because if I'm not mistaken, he opened, he had an office in, in years, uh, London or, or Paris for specifically uh, the European portion, I guess the, the European development of the, of the arena league. But uh, I, that's all I was able to find was that he, at least he had set something up over in Europe when it came to an address, et cetera, et cetera. So. Yeah, I mean, that might have been later on, I've, I've, you know, or you might have found something in a Google search, obviously for, uh, for their, I mean, because Gridiron was a U.S. company, and then yeah. Andy Dixon, the promoter in Paris, he had his company. So then the joint venture that Gridiron put up, put together with Andy's company they had they had to form an entity, I believe it was like Channel Islands or something. But they had to form an entity over there to, you know, put it, to do the business, right. you know, and register with the proper authorities and so mm-hmm. forth. So, you, you know, what you found may have just been that that entity registration or something. It's possible. Um, two thousand two, you're heading back home, so to speak. Uh, I mean. After '99, you got you got out of the arena. It was all together. You got out of the AFL. Is that correct? Well, I mean, I mean '96, really. I mean, because you know, it was strictly just the European stuff, and True. and that was that was just you know a small portion of the year. I was right. off doing lots of other stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, but in 2002, 2002, you return home uh, with the Predators. You become a, a partner again. And a consultant, and you're also you know you're also teaming up with uh, with Bob Grease, who uh, with Gladiators and Tampa Bay Storm fame uh, became part of the ownership group. Also, what what pulled you back into the AFL? Well, I mean, Bob did. Uh, <laughs> you know, we'd always had you know we had a friendly rivalry between Orlando and Tampa, and then of oh. course. He, he sold Tampa about the same time as I left and went to Memphis. And, uh, you know, we, we weren't in touch for a while, but then I forget exactly what has got us back in touch, but, you know, we started, you know, talking and emailing occasionally and, you know, and probably in the late nineties, just, you know, more sharing observations of the league from afar. And then, uh, when, you know, I got a call from him one day. I guess it was probably you know sometime in two thousand two, and he said, uh, "You're never going to believe this." And uh, you know, he had basically taken a controlling financial interest in the Predators, and uh, you know, it was kind of you know word on the street around Orlando for a while that you know there was you know some financial difficulties in that organization, so. You know, it was good to see Bob step in, but, you know, part of, you know, he just, he asked me, he said, you know, what, what made the Predators special back in the early days? And, you know, I had always thought that what it was, was we, in our ownership group, you know, even though, you know, it wasn't a huge amount of money that, you know, other than Davey at the beginning had in that any one person had in, we had like 20, 25 people who were really, who were movers and shakers about town. Right. I mean, we had, you know, 
former congressmen. We had, you know, big time doctors, big time attorneys, you know, lots, lots of different business involvement that meant political involvement and so forth. So, you know, by that time with the Predators, it was basically, uh, you know, Brett, Brett Bushy and his group of stockholders that he, you know, he, you know, the, the Predators had been a, uh, basically a penny stock, uh, for years. And, and there were a lot of different people in and out of that investment over the years. And, uh, you know, just, uh, but nobody was from Orlando. And, and, uh, so, you know, Bob said, you know, will you help me get Orlando people involved in this again? So when I knew a lot of Orlando people, so I said, okay. And I helped them get a bunch of people involved. Did you find that having to recruit 12 people? Because we've seen before where sometimes the, too many cooks can swallow the broth. I'll give a good example as being the Montreal Expos. That's a very good example right before they're, they're bought by Major League Baseball. But did you did you find that having 12 owners, having bits and pieces of the team caused more issues than may necessarily had need to have been? No, because again, this is, you know, this is not major investment money. Right. Right. I mean, if, if the, you know, if someone's worth several million dollars and they're putting $50,000 into something for okay. 2% of something, it's, they do it with the attitude that they're never going to see that money again. They hope they will, mm-hmm. you know, but so at the same time, they also understand that they're passive silent investors. Okay. So, you know, have, have fun with it. Uh, tell your friends and neighbors, you're a part owner, you know, when you're in the bar or on the golf course, tell everybody, pass around your business cards and say partner, because that's all, that's all good for marketing. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, if we need, if the organization needs something that falls into your particular area of expertise, you know, we need, uh, we're having trouble finding a good deal for decent apartments for the players to live in. And you're a major real estate attorney in town who has clients who are apartment developers, you know, help us get one of those guys to help us. You know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, that's yeah. that's why you want, you know, long tentacles into your local market so that it's not so much uh, that they're, they're going to make a lot of money from it, but that they can have fun with it and they can help supply the needs of the organization. Okay, makes sense. And, and for you, unfor- I mean, you're back with the Predators. You can't get over that hump. You just... You go to a cha- you guys go to a championship in two thousand two, and you know you know sometimes they say you know you know the saying with what is the the uh, bridesmaids never a bride yeah it, it, unfortunately for you that you just could never get that ring could you <laughs> well I I did get a ring but not not as uh, not contemporaneously one yeah. one thing that uh, that that Bob was nice enough to do is. Uh, he actually, when, when we brought all these, these owners in, 
uh, you know, the new, the new Orlando partners, uh, as part of the, part of the deal is, is Bob, uh, bought everybody predators championship rings. And you had your, you had your choice of the 98 style or the 2000 style. Oh, cool. Oh, okay. That's so, neat. So, so I have a 2000 predators championship yeah. ring, even, even though nice. I had no involvement that year. Still, it's a ring, right? Yep. <laughs> um, what made you finally step away? Cause after 04, you, it seems like you totally washed your hands of everything. What, what made you finally step away from arena football? Well, I had, again, what Bob had asked help with and some, you know, reestablishing some sponsorship relationships, bring in some local owners. Mm-hmm. Basically I'd fulfilled my mission and, uh, you know, I was just kind of, kind of tired of it after yeah. so many years. And, uh, uh, my, uh, my principal business at that time, which, you know, again, since I had left Memphis in the spring of 96, I'd been doing other things with most of my time. And, uh, I had started a business in, uh, 90, late 97, early 1998 that, okay. you know, by 2004 was, was really doing well and demanding a lot of my time. And a lot of my time was, being spent out of the country. So I just, okay. uh, you know, I didn't have the time to devote to it. Um, looking back, obviously, as you and I are talking right now, the, you know, the league went through its, uh, you know, in, in when I look at the history of the AFL, there are four dates in the in AFL history, and all of them, unfortunately, are when the, team, the league is threatened to close or folded, came back, folded, et cetera, et cetera. For you... Being that that now the league does not exist anymore, at least as as the moment, we don't know if it's going to come back or not. I think that's the first question I want to ask you. I know you've been from what you've seen, you're listening to the different podcasts that we put out. Uh, I'm sure you've watched it from time to time. In your opinion, do you think, if done right, the AFL could return in today in the new norm? I always have and always will. Good. I, I, I'm, I'm with you there. I'm with you there. Um, from the time that you were with the Arena Football League, whether you were an executive or whether you were on one of the boards or whether you're part of the Predators or whatever, whatever you did, what else you did, what, what's the one thing that's going to stand out to you the most? If you were to give a story, somebody were to run into you, in the, you know, on the street, and, exp- and to, for you to tell them something about Arena Football, what what would you tell them, Eric? Oh, gosh, there there are there are so many cool stories. Met so many cool people along the time. Had so many neat experiences. Um, but I guess because because of how the most recent version of the league ended, mm-hmm. which is the same way that the Alliance League ended last year and it did not need to happen. It's workers comp. Mm -hmm. And we knew it was a problem back in 1992. The league tackled the problem in 1994 and had it solved. 
And somewhere along the line, whether it was because once the CBA went in the in the place, they didn't think they had to worry about it as much, or with all the NFL people coming in during that period, just there wasn't time to focus on it. But, I mean, that was always the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. And... The elephant was put in a cage for a while, and it was let back out, and it ate the league. And, and it just, it was totally unnecessary. It did not have to happen. How, how were you able, because obviously people remember, or people should remember, because I mentioned it before in, in other podcasts, especially, actually the one with uh, Commissioner O'Hara, you know, the Albany Firebirds, they're officially their offices were in Vermont, so technically they weren't in Vermont. Uh, in Albany, they were in Vermont to deal with you know, with the uh, workers' comp. Yeah. How did the league uh, solve that problem back then? Well, you have to think, workers' comp as a system is designed to be punitive against an employer whose employees get hurt on the job. Mm-hmm. Okay? And it's designed to protect the employees and to punish the employers. Okay? Right. Well, Professional sports just should not be under workers' comp. Okay. Because if you think about it, because, you know, every hockey player, every baseball player, every football player, every basketball player, in the course of however long their seasons are, they're going to get hurt. You know, it may, may be a knee, might be just an ankle, you know, whatever. It may not be a major, may be minor, but it's something that at the end of the season, they could say, I can't work because of this injury sustained during the season, and I won't be able to work until this is fixed. Right. Okay. So all the major leagues, they have worked out statutory exemptions and they self-insure. Okay. Um, in 1994, we had a committee and Woody and I were kind of the prime players in it. And, you know, Woody had the background with the nursing homes and the health business and, and Glenn, uh, Missoula up in Albany, he had nursing homes too. So he was somewhat familiar with the health business right. and, we retained an attorney that I knew in Orlando specialized in his practice. The league retained him to research the issue for us and write a legal opinion. And one of the things he found that there were three states at that time in the country that had complete exemptions for, for professional athletes. And those were Florida, Texas, and Massachusetts. Okay. Well, of course, that's why Joe O'Hara went to Massachusetts and of course, Woody was in Texas, and then he moved to Florida. Yeah. But you know, these people in these other states, you know, they had issues. So we came up with a program where we could largely self-insure because all workers' comp falls under a thing called the ERISA Act. Uh, can't remember what E R I S A stands for, but you know, it's federal legislation going back to the late seventies, and. As long as you do certain alternative things, you don't have to have the workers' comp, even in st- states where you do, where they say you do. 
So there's there's exemptions written into the law where you don't have to have workers' comp, and that's basically if you have a self-insurance program. So, you know, you like if you go to just you you watch just about any sporting event in an arena, you'll always see a sideboard banner for an orthopedic doctor group. Right? Well, okay. in most of those. You know what those orthopedic doctor groups are they're quite frankly they're writing a large check to the team for a sponsorship and in return they're going to get all that work they're going to get all the knees and shoulders and elbows and ankles and then they can turn around and bill that work to what an insurance company or whoever's going to pay for it and they will that doctor group will make back five times the cost of that sponsorship. Okay. They're buying a book of business. So, you know, we just, so teams were happy to take the 50 or $75,000 a year from the orthopedic groups, but then the orthopedic groups were billing the heck out of workers comp all off season and driving the rates up. So we got everybody convinced, okay, Give the orthopedic group the sponsorship, but instead of taking the money, take the first fifty or seventy-five thousand dollars in services. Don't let them bill it to workers' comp, you know, and then go get a sponsorship with a local MRI company. So you got somebody who do can do MRIs for free or greatly reduced cost. And then okay. I I worked out a national sponsorship with. Health South, which is gone now, but they that time they were around and they were a, a national chain of rehab clinics. Okay, yeah, so I recognize the name. I recognize the name. Wherever our players went to in their off season, they had a deal. They could go get their rehab, and we didn't have to pay for it because normally, you know, rehab is prescribed, and every time they go to the rehab clinic, there's a bill for. Thirty-five, fifty, seventy-five dollars going to the insurance company, right? And then in the next year, your rates go up. So again, we we identified what we could do to avoid work comp, came up with a system to implement it, and everything was cool. And sometime after I left, they took they took their eye off the ball, and it eventually ruined the thing. You know, and I know at one point they had talked about, I, know, I think they had a league office set up in Fort Lauderdale for a while. And that was solely yeah. because, you know, they, they did the single entity thing where all player contracts were signed with an entity in Florida trying to use the Florida exemption of work comp to get out of work comp. That was the sole reason for having a Fort Lauderdale office. Okay. No, yeah, I think, what, yeah, Drucker. I think Drucker moved the uh, yeah. the league office down there. And that's and that's why, you know, Glenn artificially moved the Firebirds to Vermont. That's why in the Alliance League last year, the Orlando Apollos, Steve Spurrier's team, about halfway through the season, they moved to Georgia. Yep, I remember that. Yep. You know, okay. and then, of course that's that's why their owner folded the league because. He saw the same thing that the arena league saw. Oh boy. All worked out. So for, for me, that's kind of the the singular big story. It's not it's not the most fun story. You yeah. know, the 
getting Shaq for the coin toss was fun. The oh yeah. Uh, the day the day Terry Bradshaw dropped into our office unannounced and sat there for three hours, just that's, telling stories with cool. Terry. I mean, that's cool. I mean, just just all the different all the different coaches and their experiences. I mean, walk walking through the Memphis airport with Pete Catella one day, we're, you know, going to catch a flight and somebody yells out coach. And we turned around and it was Warren moon. <laughs> you know, and he was just changing planes in Memphis, but Pete had been his coach in Edmonton. Yeah. You know, it was just, uh, you know, just, just cool things like that that happen, you know, stand out in your mind. Um, being that you were your that Orlando really was your home, uh, when it came to the arena league. Um, but I mean, unless you want to mention it to everybody, if, you, if you're able to tell fans, whether it be in Orlando or the entire league, one particular thing, what would you, what would you want to tell them? Well, be ready. Cause someday, sometime, I believe somebody's going to try and bring it back. Keep keep the faith. I mean, I know in uh, we had a a group that started in in Orlando way back in '91 or '92 as a fan club. Originally, they were the In Your Face fan club, and then they changed their name to something else. But they have an active uh, Facebook page, and they're posting on there every day. You know, they're remembering you know, players' birthdays and coaches' birthdays. And, you know, if a player who played 20 years ago has a kid or a grandkid, it's on that website. Wow. And now I know Now I know where that, conf- where that uh, comes from. I did not know that. Yeah. So it's, uh, of course, right now, because the, uh, uh, the Predators, as a name, are a team in the Bushy Siegfried League whatever the national league, national arena league, uh, was, you know, I guess they didn't, they ended up not playing this year, but I guess Ben Bennett was supposed to be their coach. Um, you know, hopefully they can, you know, so that's kind of the focus of the fans now because they're ardent fans and they don't care whether it's AFL or NAL or whatever it is. They, they love their predators. And, uh, so I just say, keep the faith. Well, I have greatly appreciated our time tonight, Eric. I mean, you're, you're able to give some insight into, you know, a lot that, that fans are not a privy to. And, um, again, I want to thank you for reaching out to me because, again, I, I know a lot of players within the Arena Football League family, but there are a lot of people that I don't know. So I, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate that you reached out to me. And uh, we, we thank you, for obviously, for being a part of the Arena Football family. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate the opportunity. It's good talking with you. And uh, hopefully it wasn't too boring because it's not talking about on-the-field stuff. It's behind-the-scenes stuff. But uh, uh, I greatly appreciate what, what you and Adam and other people have done over the years you know, with, with the website. You know, the, uh, that was kind of the website was coming on as I was – easing out of the league, but, you know, so that was my prime source of information since the late nineties on what was going on in the arena league. And, uh, so you're to be commended for all that work and keeping everybody together all these years.
We want to thank Eric for joining us on the podcast. As you can see, if you've been listening to our entire series of podcasts, you know, there are a lot of similarities when it comes to how a team actually starts. I mean, sometimes there's just a, a little bit of a tweak here and there, depending on where the team was actually started up and what city and how many, I guess, were in the actual ownership group itself. But uh, uh, it was our pleasure to talk with them and to find out how the the very famous Orlando Predators got started. Before we let you go, uh, I do want to at least mention something that uh, we have learned and we want to at least promote it. Uh, if you do not know already that there is a YouTube channel out there that is called AF, uh, excuse me, it's called Arena Football TV, and we have learned that a game, one of the most historical and important games in league history, will be made available to the fans. And I've been told that um, a watch party will be taking place. Um, it is for the showcase game that occurred. This is right before the league itself actually started. Um, and stay tuned to social media as it will be uh, as the time and uh, as the time will be announced very shortly. But I can tell you that the game is currently scheduled to be released on Black Friday this year. So right after Thanksgiving, you will be able to to have a. There will be football that day, other than uh, you know, other than the NFL type and college. There will be football that for a game that has not been seen, uh, I'm sure, by a lot of us in 30 plus years. So stay tuned to social media for more information. If you happen to miss any of the recent episodes. Or if you want to go back to and listen to the entire series of historical podcasts for AFL Tonight, uh, you can do so by heading over to SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and our audio version is also over on YouTube. If you have any suggestions for the show, there are a couple ways where you can get in contact with us. You can email us over at aflrewind at arenafn.com. Or you can also find us on social media, uh, whether it be the the Arena Fan Facebook page or our Twitter accounts, and that could be at Arena Fan or at AFL Rewind. So we hope everybody stays safe, stays healthy, do what's necessary, especially in these very unique times, and we hope to have you back for the next episode. So everybody here at AFL Rewind, I'm Tim Capper. Watch the rebound off the net.